Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. I'm Daniel Bogart, the rabbi. And we are joined by a second rabbi today, Miriam Terlenchamp, or Terlenchamp. Uh, hi, Miriam. Hi, Carl. <laughs> how, how, how well did I do in uh, Frenchifying your last name there? I'd say you get a 3.5 on a five-point scale. I feel like when I was practicing <laughs> it, I was more nasally, and that worked better. Oh, well. Yeah, um, Miriam, I feel like you're grading like the French judge here. Yeah. <laughs> you are, well, you are. I- <laughs> So, Miriam, um, tell tell me, since I haven't actually met you and our listeners, a little bit about yourself. You you are in Cincinnati. Correct. Uh, yes, I'm a rabbi of a synagogue in Cincinnati, and I've been here about eight years. And then I'm also a director of a justice organization here in Cincinnati. Uh, what's the name of the organization so people will know where to go for their justice? Yes, uh, our organization is called Just Love, and it's uh, three pastors, an imam, and myself. And we just sort of bring together people who need a little spiritual sustenance during this difficult time in our country's history. And, and what do you do together? Do you have talks and forums or marches, or do you do it all? We we do it all. It's uh, It started with we were working all together in the sanctuary mo- movement. So the group of us were working with the Amos Project, which is the largest faith-based organizing collaborative in Ohio. And um, the night we announced we would start our sanctuary coalition, we got a call. And um, this amazing woman was going to be deported, a mother of four, and we worked together and um, we did everything right. And um, just gathered all the attention we could, and we protested, and we wrote articles, and we were present for the family, and she was still deported. And Ew. after her deport- deportation, all of us who had been working together, both clergy and lay people, we um, went out drinking. And then we thought, well, maybe other people need to do things besides, you know, drown our sorrows um, around our activist work. And so uh, Just Love was born, really, in that moment, and we started having services together once a month and it's uh, we call it creating social justice liturgy just uh, how do we sort of get out of the framework of our own particularism so that we can unify and have truth that's collective that restores wow. the soul of the moment to go do justice work and then we protest and we gather signatures and we write op-eds and we sort of do everything um Wait. well yeah so you, so you are a, a particularly apt person to have on during this section of exodus which is largely about the creation of liturgy and all yes. the things you need for it. I suppose. Well, very exciting. Okay. Um, and, and in Judaism, what, is, what tradition do you come out of? I grew up as a conservative Jew, and now I am a rabbi of a reform movement, and I graduated from a reform seminary. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, Daniel, do you have anything to add? Nothing. Shall we jump into the text? Yeah, let's, ju- let's jump right in. So verse 1 of chapter 30. And you shall make an altar for burning incense, acacia wood, you shall make it a cubit its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square and two cubits its height from the same piece, its horns. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, its roof and its walls are all round and its horns. And you shall make for it a golden molding all around. I'm sure it makes me a bad person, but I can't hear incense without just sort of thinking of my college dorm room. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, a lot of uh, patchouli scented exactly. going there. There, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've got this incense going on here. It's the continuation of all of this ritual stuff that we have had. We had the priests and how they dressed, and then we had the priests actually dressing, and we had the sacrifices, and now we are getting to the incense itself. Uh, okay, what's the point of this incense? Um. Well, I mean, I think in, when when Christ, liturgical Christians use it, we say that it is metaphorically symbolizing the way our prayers ascend to God. But I have a feeling you have a different answer. Ooh, I like that. Well, you still use incense. Is that right? Episcopalians use oh, incense? Heck yeah. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. I feel like we should. Miriam, do you ever use incense? I mean, uh, like at shul or at just love? At Just Love, only when the hippies come. Oh, they bring their own. Yes. They just come in upon a wafting uh, scent of chili, and that counts. Yes. Okay, that is beautiful. Uh, so, you know, I, I come out of this rationalist tradition of Judaism uh, from Maimonides, and 
he says, I love this explanation. What is the whole point of this incense ritual that we're about to get? Sacrifices really smell, right? This is a slaughterhouse. Think about the awful smells coming out of here that fundamentally the incense is about uh, just making it not reek so bad. Lovely, lovely. Well, that is probably the practical reason behind anything. I mean, I'm sure in a, a church in the Middle Ages with a bunch of unwashed bodies all clustered together, it stunk then as well. Oh, interesting. I never thought of that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, same idea with the hippies. No deodorant, you know, you burn the incense. Yeah. Right. I know, but that would be like, then the Jews don't smell. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> It's a little problematic, yeah. Uh, well, since last time we were talking about how the the ordination rite for the priesthood, uh, which involved wearing a cloak covered in blood and other things for a week, I'm sure there was a lot of smell. Oh, yeah. On. I know. Yeah. I couldn't get past it. I could only think about how gross it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we also have another midrash for this, don't we? Um, we have a whole... Long tunnel, we can go down into the idea of hell. Hell. Uh, or in this case, Gehenna. So lay it on us, O oh rabbis. Uh, so first, a little background on Gehenna. Uh, it's actually named after a valley just outside of the old city walls of Jerusalem. It is also a suburb of Columbus. Is the it most really? poorly, yes, <laughs> the most poorly named civic, uh, or poorly, poor civic name choice of all time. But anyway, go on. Wow. Actually, in the Valley of Gehenna now is the uh, artist's colony. Oh, that figures. Yeah, yeah, yeah appropriate, right? <laughs> uh, but it's, according to tradition at least, the place where uh, idol worshippers, now we're going back to the time of David, uh, offered human sacrifices, uh, sacrifices of the firstborn. And so it becomes the word that is used in Judaism for the concept that's sort of closest to hell. It's probably a little more like purgatory uh, in terms of its metaphysics here. But the real idea is what could be a place that is more hellish than a place where humans sacrifice their own children. So some background, and let's look at what the Talmud does. Miriam, you want to read this? Sure. As, as Reish Lakish said, with regard to the sinners of the Jewish people... The fire of Gehenna has no power over them, as may be learned by a fortiori reasoning from the golden altar. If the golden altar in the temple, which was only covered by gold, the thickness of a golden dinar. And this is the connection to what we're reading right now. Stood for many years and the fire did not burn it, for its gold did not melt. So too the sinners of the Jewish people, who are filled with good deeds like a pomegranate, as it is stated, your temples are like a split pomegranate behind your veil, will not be affected by the fire of Gehenna. So Reish Lakish is a biased observer here. Uh, he's a rabbi who started his uh, career, if you want to call it that, as a gladiator in the ring in Rome. Uh, so he's going into this with a real sense, I think, of holding on to guilt and a sense of true sin. Uh, as to what he's done. Mm. Okay. So, because he has murdered people. He has murdered people. Yeah. 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 So he has a sense of hell that he needs to be protected from in some way. Yeah. Uh, but it's also, I, I'm sure you both have encountered this too. I mean, my sense is one of the religious personalities that is out there is the person who makes a total break or, or a psychic break with some sense of past sin, whatever that was and religiosity and this new identity of religiosity, whether it's uh, becoming newly observant Jew or uh, born again, Christian or whatever that looks like is often a way to start life again, to reboot. Right. Right. And uh, you know, I go back and forth. Miriam, I wonder what you think about this. I One part of me, since I am not that person, and that person usually becomes much more um, zealous than I ever am, uh, one part of me is suspicious of that personality type. Another part of me really sees its value. Like I was just talking to a friend who was saying that uh, his wife's mother made that break uh, from a fairly abusive childhood. And and there because she was able to make that break, she did not become an abuser herself, and her daughter is fine, and that 
is something to be admired. How, what, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think about, I mean, I think psychology says that, right? Like if you can confront what you've been through and then name it and then you're able to move past it better. But I, I, I guess what I struggle with here is it doesn't feel very Jewish to me, even though it's coming from a Jewish space. And I think, um, like when I used to work as a, a jail chaplain, I always felt bad for the guys when it was be me because I felt like when I came in from a Jewish perspective, they'd say, well, will I be forgiven? Will God forgive me? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, yeah, right. I don't know, probably not. <laughs> you got to start over. And I felt like um, coming from other traditions, they were sort of promised, if you just take this wholly into your heart, then you will have a clean start. And I felt like for my tradition, I couldn't say that that was true. I mean, every day is a new day. That's absolutely true. But it doesn't sort of erase what came before. And I feel like this text is saying, well, so long as you do good in the world, it will take away some of that sin, or at least will protect you from the ultimate um, death of the spirit. Yeah, I I don't know either. Like, I don't think they would be very happy with me coming in either, because I would I would have the same problem with that. Um, something I'm just I was reading today uh, was very interesting about this. It said that in evangelicalism, um, all doubt is thought to come from Satan. So that if if you're having doubts, you're really just struggling against Satan because certainty is so key, so important. Um, and I am like I I think both doubt and certainty can be approached from a neutral position, right? Uh, where you just kind of accept them equally as part of the spiritual life, and you move in and out of them depending on where you are in your journey. But uh, but you're not afraid of either. I think that's so beautiful, Carl. I, I really do to hold both like that in your hands. I, I think that the fear comes when, when you doubt, will you ever come back? And I, yeah. I imagine that most, at least uh, many clergy, I don't, maybe it's not most, but there, most of us, I think, experience a moment where there is loss, whether it's belief in God, belief in the system, um, was that call really the call? And I'm guessing that most people of faith have these moments. And then the true fear of it is, will I ever get to feel like that again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know that. I, I just went through this. My mom died a year and a half ago, and I went through a year of incredible doubt. Uh, but then at Christmas, I was in California and went to church, and I had this real sense um, that I was having my belief given back to me. And the reason it could be given back to me was that my, my co-religionists had been holding it for me until I was ready to receive it again. Mm. That was a beautiful, it was actually a really beautiful moment. It, it convinced me of the value of, of religious community more than really anything else in my life has. Hmm. Wow. So I, I always feel personally for me that sort of uh, upholding doubt is the cornerstone of my faith. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, there's a old story by the Kutzker Rebbe, one of the sort of great doubters uh, of Jewish tradition. It's in Martin Buber's tales of the Hasidim where a student of one of these great Rebbe's, the, the leader of the town really, uh, comes to his Rebbe and says, Rebbe, I'm having uh, such a problem. I don't think I believe in God anymore. The Rebbe says, well, what's the problem? And he says, well, if I don't believe in God, how can I be a good Jew? And he says, well, what's the problem with that? And he says, well, if I don't believe in God, how can I be believe in the Torah? And how can I be a good Jew? And he, keeps going on and on like this. And finally the Rebbe looks at him and says, if you're struggling, you're a good Jew after all. Uh, Uh, And that's always been my sense of faith. Right. Hmm. Huh. And, and Miriam, you know, we have yet to have um, an Iman on, on the podcast, but since you work with an Iman, isn't that, uh, I'm going to just pretend that you, that you're an expert. Uh, isn't that kind of a sense of holy struggle in, in Islam too? Oh, well, let me speak for a whole group of people here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also speak for women. <laughs> no, no, I mean, uh, I, I don't really know. I think that it is a place of connection. I mean, I'm sure Daniel can speak to that too, that I think Jews and Muslims for all the things that we have that are so different, that that, that sort of embrace is is same. This is the same of the struggle. It's a continuous struggle. I think that our connection is there. Um, I think it feels to me that there's more room in Islam for full embrace, and that not only will there be moments of doubt, but there'll be moments of true embodied 
faith. And I think that um, liberal Jews, like non-Orthodox or um, ultra-Orthodox Jews, I think that there's less room for that. Like Jews understand that you're going to doubt and question. Like they were just brought up to that since they're little. Um, but I think to be completely blinded and immersed in, in true faith, having those moments that we kind of like, oh, then you must be a little bit weird then. Uh, uh, that's my read. I don't know, Daniel, did you agree with that? I'm I call perfect faith idolatry. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So you're, you're like a weirdo. If, if you're like, I was just really called in this moment to connect to God and I smelled all this incense and it wasn't about the bodies. It was, I was actually connecting to God in a personal way that that's not so, so classically Jewish, I would say. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Well, and as part of that, because Judaism is so much more about community in certain ways, than uh, at least Christianity in the West is? Well, yeah, I think we're all about action, right? Like, so how it's less about what you feel or you think, it's about what you're doing, which I think is calls us back to this text. Like, okay, you could have done other things, but as long as you're doing good. And I, I will say, I think that what Judaism is trying to work its way back towards is that feeling and thoughts do matter also. You need hands, hearts, and gut is part of it mm-hmm. all. Um, but as long as you got your hands, you're fine. And I, I imagine that many other faiths are focusing or struggling with the opposite struggle, which is as long as your heart's okay, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter as much. And how do you sort of connect action with thoughts? But I, I think that Judaism is really struggling to, to feel again. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know if this chapter will help us really with that because it is so, uh, systematic in some ways about the building of the altar. Um, but it is also about atonement. So let, let's, let's continue on with the reading of the chapter and see if we can, um, examine that question of how do we feel again? Um, and, and when emotion, uh, and kind of moments of pure faith are, are acceptable and when they should be tempered by doubt. Verse four. Okay. Um, and two golden rings you shall make for it beneath its molding on its two flanks. You shall make on its two opposite sides and they shall be housings for the poles with which to carry it. And you shall set it before the curtain that is near the Ark of the Covenant in front of the cover that is over the Ark. So we are back to our Ikea instructions of how to build an incense burner. <laughs> yes, yes, we are. <laughs> but then it says, in front of the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, where I shall meet you, right? So this is, in fact, very direct uh, mm-hmm. experience of God that is being described here. And Aaron shall burn upon it the aromatic incense morning after morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn it. So just another note, and we've talked about this before, that any time it says Aaron, what we're really talking about is the high priest. Uh, because we're detailing uh, Aaron, but this becomes the paradigm for the operations of Second Temple Judaism. So this looks like, for all practical purposes, the experience Jesus would have had in the temple. Uh, at twilight, he shall burn it a perpetual incense before the Lord for your generations. You shall not offer it up on it. You shall not offer up on it unfit incense, nor burnt offerings, nor grain offerings. No libation shall you pour upon it. And Aaron shall atone on its horns once a year with the blood of the offense offering of atonement. Once a year, he shall atone on it for your generations. It is a holy of holies to the Lord. That's the end of a section. Yeah. Okay. So that ends the um, the Torah portion. Can we talk about atonement, please? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess I'm asking you what what does atonement mean in this case? A day of atonement. So you know, I think what's going on here, first of all, is if you look at the Rashi, that this is the day of atonement for the altar itself. Is what's happening here? For all the things that went wrong for with the all altar. of the things that went wrong with the altar, right? It, it, going back to our notion of cleanliness and uncleanliness or purity and impurity or whatever words we want to use here, uh, fit and unfit, uh, that if you're going to recognize that it's only valid, this communion with God, if all of the rituals are done perfectly, then you have to recognize that at times, not all of the rituals are done perfectly. And so this becomes itself a ritual to atone for the fact that the rituals have not always been done perfectly, which I guess raises the question of what happens if you mess up this ritual. So this is kind of a system reboot. Yes. 
Yes, mm. built into it. This is spring cleaning at some level. Okay. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know if we have an answer to what happens if, if this ritual is done imperfectly. Is there any answer to that? Mm. I mean, I think we do have an answer to it. I think that, that what we're going into is Aaron's about to make his own personal expiation before the Lord in terms of his own atonement. And then not that long afterwards, his sons offer alien fire, which is told in this text that we're not supposed to do. No eating or drinking or offering something alien and they're killed. And I think we later explain it away for in lots of ways. But I think one of the ways we explain it is that they did something wrong in the ritual yes. itself. Yes. Okay. So the alien fire uh, was used in the ritual and it all went horribly yes. wrong. Or like, what's that story where... There's a guy, they said, don't, don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. And there's the guy who was about to trip and he puts his hands up and yeah. he dies because you're not supposed to touch it, even though he was trying to protect so, it. Raiders the Lost Ark. Right. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, well, also, I think it might also be the, ju- the book of Judges, right? <laughs> I, I, I think my... they just got it from Spielberg, actually. Oh, they did. Okay. Well, we know from Exodus that time is not linear, <laughs> so that makes sense to me. Um <laughs> Well, so in Christianity, of course, atonement is this giant, giant idea. And I don't want to go into all the atonement theory. Um, there is a kind of mildly cheesy way that it's talked about as at one being at one with God and ourselves. Uh, this has become very popular in kind of liberal Christian circles who don't really like the substitutionary atonement of the past and are trying to find a new way to think about this. Um, but it's never thought of, I think, as a kind of, uh, rebooting of, of a liturgy that, that keeps everything going. So, you know, I think atonement in general is actually within Judaism, a notion of a reboot, uh, mm-hmm. that fundamentally the way you atone is not through the sacrifice itself. That's the symbolic marker at the end of the process, that the way you atone is you recognize, uh, the ways you have not been the person you should have been. And you become a different person. And once you have owned what you did and truly become a different person, the notion is that you have atoned and those sins are not upon you anymore. And actually going back to our earlier conversation about Gehenna, uh, there's this tradition that when you die, you go to Gehenna uh, to work out all of the uh, evil things you did that you haven't owned up to within yourself. Uh, And we're also told that can last no more than a year, by the way. So it's a kind of purgatory. Yes, yes. purgatory is the much closer translation than hell uh, in terms of the concept here. Huh. Uh, but again, most Jews understand this highly metaphorically. No, I think we think of it as that's the foyer into the house that we're entering. So if we're entering many rooms as people in, at different stages in our lives and our deaths, and the foyer is where we sort of collect our belongings and then huh. move on. Nice. <laughs> I like that. What belongings do you take with you into the afterlife? Metaphorical belongings, I imagine. Belongings of self-love. I think this is this is always a place where I I don't think I screw it up, but I, I I get wishy-washy with interfaith dialogue because I think explaining what happens after we die um, is something that we don't spend a lot of time focusing on. Like Gehenna might be the closest we get to it. And then I think we avoid it by saying, well, we live on in the collective unconscious and the memories of other people and just return to the Godhead. And so what belongings we take with you is an excellent question that um, I'm now deflecting with this long sentence. Sure, sure. No, I, I, I see it. And I have to say, in, you know, the problem probably with interfaith dialogue is that most religions are huge and capacious and have all these different ideas. And therefore, you've got to have to ask, what kind of a Christian am I dialoguing with? Because that is going to you know, change their answer to these questions. I, yeah. You know, I also think, though, that it's, we don't mean the same thing by Jewish that we mean by Christian, that we mean by Muslim or Islamic, I guess would be the appropriate word there. Uh, These are different categories. And oftentimes we tend to think that the questions that are important to us within our group are shared. And I think fundamentally, one Mm -hmm. of the things Miriam's getting at here is this just isn't understood as a central question in Judaism. Certainly there's yeah. discussion. Certainly there's lot, you know, lots and lots of layers of this. Uh, and there's people who believe lots of different things about this, but it's just not a central 
question for Jewish life. Would you agree with that, Mary? Sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I always think it's strange when I explain in an interfaith context that when I prepare for someone's funeral, I'll ask the, the deceased family members, what did the deceased believe in? And then I'll say, what do you believe in about after afterlife or what happens when someone dies? And then I'll craft my funeral service based on that. So even though there's some established liturgy, each funeral is unique in terms of what the people believe. I think that's something hard to sort of grasp in other faiths. Uh, less and less so. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, that would make sense to me too, in terms of doing a funeral because Episcopalians don't really have a coherent view of the afterlife, I would say. So. Oh, that's great to know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I hope I'm, I'm, some would disagree with that, of course, and say, of course we do. Uh, but basically I've said this before, if you're looking out at a congregation on a Sunday morning, you just have to be aware that there is, are as many different theological ideas as there are people in the room, uh, that are present. So, okay. Anyway, once again, we went down a deep well, so, (laughs) um, Okay, let's get to counting and numbers. Miriam, would you read from verse 11? Sure. The Lord spoke to Moses saying... Right. Okay, I'm going to pause you here, Miriam, sorry. Uh, this is actually the beginning of how the rabbis divide up the Torah. So this is the beginning of a new Torah portion right here uh, with verse 11. And we can see it with this introduction, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying that, that we're into a new subject. Um, so in that sense, this is the new chapter for the rabbis and maybe most significantly, this is the Torah portion that I read for my bar mitzvah. That is the most significant yes. thing. About yes. It. If you can, while Miriam's reading, if you can imagine me sort of squeaking along, uh, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, actually, this was my, uh, uh, fourth year sermon in rabbinical school. So we are connected now with Daniel. Wow. Bethel. All right. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take a census of the Israelite people, according to their enrollment, each shall pay the Lord a ransom for himself on being enrolled, that no plague may come upon them through their being enrolled. So what is this? Why would they get into a plague for being enrolled? Having a clue. The, the money pays the ransom for the plague that would come because of a census, I think. Huh. I mean, does that imply that being known to God is dangerous? Oh, interesting. So I'm not sure this is known to God. I think this is known to the people, right? This is a census for the military. They're getting ready to go and fight. Um, Huh. Could could that be the But the census donation prevents the plague. Yes. Uh, My understanding is that this goes back to sort of Jewish poo-poo-poos, um, uh, what would you call that? Uh, spiritualisms, uh, Bubba Mises. I'm still falling into yet a share. Uh, folk tales. Well, because this is read, read, this is Shabbat Shekelim. So this is read the week before Purim, yeah. right? Is that right, uh, Daniel? So, so we're ransoming ourselves. And I'm thinking if that story of Esther and having ourselves ransomed by this in this other way, I wonder if that huh. there's a connection there. You know, there is this big poo 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 about counting Jews. Right. When you're counting to make sure that you have 10 Jewish adults before you begin a service, which is required, you're not supposed to count uh, them as numbers because you're not supposed to reduce people to numbers themselves. Okay, so reducing people to numbers is the reason why having a census is um, a a complicated idea. You don't you don't want to do that. But we have had a lot of numbers in this text so far. And in fact, there's an actual book called numbers, right? So, so isn't, isn't, don't counts matter? Yeah. We find these counts, these censuses throughout uh, the book of numbers, which is where it gets its name from though. Actually, uh, this is one of those places that I really think the Jewish name for that book is so much better. The Jewish name is Bamidbar in the wilderness. Okay. But so they're in the wilderness, but they're doing a lot of counting. counting. That is true. Um, so, so, I mean, would it be fair to say that there are mixed feelings about counting in Judaism? Uh, I say let's read more of the census. Miriam, will you continue? Yeah. <clears throat> this is what everyone who is, sorry, this is what everyone who is entered in the record shall pay. A half shekel by the sanctuary weight, 20 geras the shekel, or a half shekel as an offering to the Lord. 
Everyone who has entered in the records from the age of 20 years up shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than a half shekel when giving the Lord's offering as expiation for your person. Okay, so we've got a flat tax going on here. Yeah, that is really interesting. So um, why? How is this justice? Mm-hmm. So the tradition actually ends up saying that uh, the coin doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a shekel, that the issue is it should be a half of a coin of whatever the dominant currency of the realm is. Uh, so we're talking about, uh, you know, a Kennedy 50 cent piece here or something. But the poor and the rich, the poor and the rich the should pay the same. Yeah, well, I, was, I was thinking well, two things. One is the poor and the rich paying the same. It was really different than when we're building the Mishkan, we're building the sanctuary, and they're saying give whatever gifts comes from your heart. So it's a really different way of taxing the people where one is we're building and they get a whole pile of riches, right, that that's a lot to sort through, where this is just a flat tax. And I, I know that there's something in Mark or Luke, so Carl, you'll have to correct me, about – the widow only giving two pennies and then there's a rich person who gave a bigger amount, but it was, but hers was actually worth more in proportion. And that that was what was holy. Uh, yeah. Although we have to be careful of the term holy okay. uh, because I don't, I don't think it's holiness in terms of purity or anything like that. Yeah. So the story of the, of the widow's might that she gives out of all that she has um, and therefore it is maybe more righteous might be the better way to think of it. But the, um, it is a very challenging story and biblical commentator commentators are very careful to try and put it in conversation with things like the end of the sermon of the mound. Mm. Um, because what we don't want is this assumption that poor people should just give away everything mm. they have to the church. Um, uh-huh. In fact, you know, part of the reason the church was so successful in late antiquity is it took care of the widows and the orphans. So the, the economic uh, redistribution was in the exact opposite direction. And part of the reason why we, you know, tithing was instituted, and this comes from Peter Brown, the great historian of late antiquity, uh, was that in that time in the Roman Empire, you had a, a client patronage system where if you were a very rich person, you would have you would give money to people who would then become your clients and they would support your political and civic power. And the church wanted to break that system. Um, be, you know, it, it's kind of like a mafia system, really. <laughs> and so the church said, okay, rich people, you give, and then we will anonymously redistribute your wealth so no one will know who gave to them so that they can't come and become your, your hmm. clients. Um, so basically the widow smite story, um, is a complicated one. And a lot of Christian history does not back a kind of easy reading of it. That would say, um, you're good if you give and you're bad if, if you don't. Yeah, that's so helpful because I, I've, that's really helpful because I, I learned that your text and it's maybe sort of question mine a little bit and thinking about what, how we see justice differently is justice, fairness, where everyone gets the exact same thing, no matter what. So everyone gets the same scoop of food, no matter what your, your needs are, or is, uh, is just more, justice more about what we each need and and being able to serve that. And I think that that's a really relevant issue. And I think that the Torah and Daniel tell me if I'm reading this differently, but the Torah is saying, no, we all just have to give the same amount. And that's what fairness and justice looks like. I guess I would read this is more complicated than that in the sense that I think this is, I mean, this is one of many sacrifices that are, uh, required. Uh, and many of them do have what we would call sort of economic justice at their core. I'm thinking in Leviticus, for instance, a lot of the commentaries, uh, look at the difference. When do you offer birds and when do you offer cows on the sacrifice? And the answer is it's according to your wealth. Uh, and ultimately Mm. the, uh, pigeons offered by a poor person, and this looks a lot like the story you were just talking about, have more spiritual value than the cow offered by a wealthy person. Um, but, you know, I think there is something here if we think of this not as a tax, but as a sacred counting, uh, mm. that there's a message that says we are all equal before God. 
And that fundamentally, no matter who mm-hmm. you are, when you enter into the sanctuary, your claim and these the silver shekels are boiled down to create the base of the pedestal, that, that your claim, literally the, the thing that this is built upon is equal to everyone else who enters. Mm, I love that, that God sees each of you equally, whether you're the widow, the poor, the rich man, the accomplished person, you all work yeah, the, the same thing. The Rebbe says, as regards the foundation of the relationship between God and humanity, the rich person cannot give more and the pauper cannot give less, meaning it is impossible for there to be a difference in the spiritual mm-hmm. connection. Mm. So this is then is not really about uh, a social system. Which is interesting, right? Because we, we were talking a few minutes ago about this question of uh, experience of God, you know, um, individuated, all, all-encompassing all experience of God or community experience of God or individual experience of community. So, uh, so here, again, we have this chapter being really about it's, – it's about us and God and less – all the all the fairness or justice strictures of society that may be an overstatement but <laughs> no i like it okay okay well let's let's keep rolling yes uh you want to read for us and you shall take the atonement money from the israelites and set it for the service of the tent of meeting and it shall be a remembrance for the israelites before the lord to atone for their lives and the lord spoke to moses saying and you shall make a layer of bronze and a a laver, a laver of bronze. What is a laver? A, a basin containing water for washing is to be placed between the sacrificial altar and the tent before entering the tent or offering sacrifices. The priests must wash their hands and feet so they don't touch the sacrifices. Ah, okay. So a laver is a, a basin of some type. And Rambam says it's an act of respect for God. But it, as we go on, it says, when they come into the tent of meeting, they will wash with water that they do not die. Or when they approach the altar to serve, to burn a fire offering to the Lord, and they shall wash their hands and their feet that they do not die. And it shall be for them a perpetual statute for him and for his seed for their generation. So it's not only so, uh, respect for God, self-protection in a way, isn't it? So this is also actually a continuing tradition, too. Interesting. Uh, that there are a number of occasions throughout the year uh, where the priests, uh, Jewish priests, people who claim lineage at least, will go up and offer the priestly benediction. Yeah. Uh, but before that happens, the Kohanes, these are sort of the, the head honcho priests, go back by a bathroom and all the Levites, the assistant priests, uh, have to wash their hands and their feet. Hmm. Uh, and this continues uh, today. And actually, I'm married to a Levite and she refuses to participate in this mostly because I think her husband is a Kohen. Yeah, she'd have to wash your hands and feet. She's out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that so famously at the Last Supper, Jesus is wash. Jesus washes the feet of the apostles and insists that they do this. And now it suddenly has a different resonance to it than it did in my mind before. Huh. Uh, are they are they doing this act um, to prepare for a, a new kind of liturgy? Anyway. Uh, okay, so Aaron and his sons, um, this is going to become very problematic for us, I guess, because they are going to die, right? Yes. Is that next chapter, maybe? Yeah, it's coming up. Mm-hmm. Okay, coming up quick. Uh, but uh, But we're not there yet. So going on, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and you take... So another pause, we hear that and we know we're entering once again into a new section. Okay, a whole new section. Actually, Miriam, what's your translation? Because my translation has strange word choices by Robert Alter. Oh, I love Robert Alter. Um, Wait, sorry, tell me again what... Uh, Verse 22, could you just read so we could hear kind of what the... Yeah, thanks. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Next, take choice spices, 500 weight of solidified myrrh, half as much, 250 of fragrant cinnamon, 250 of aromatic cane, 500 by the sanctuary of cassia, and a hin of olive oil. So just to pause here, I think it's so interesting that they keep returning to this notion of sanctuary weight or holy weight or um, how important it is to them that measures are accurate and fair here. Mm. Hmm. Why, why is it so important? 
You know, first of all, if you look at this as a sacred recipe, uh, it has to be done perfectly. Uh, but actually this becomes a jumping off point for lots of Jewish conversations about business ethics. So the Talmud picks up these things and talks about, uh, the importance of fairness within, uh, economics. Well, could you talk more about that, Daniel? Cause how is that? I mean, to me, this looks like a recipe. Totally. It's a recipe. But so you get this note in 24 and there's one a little later, or maybe we already had it, uh, 500 by the sanctuary weight. So mm. you have people like Rashi who ask the question of why are they bothering to say by the sanctuary weight, right? Isn't a cella a cella? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the answer becomes that it's put there as a reminder to us that we always have to be fair in our business dealings. And this becomes then, uh, um, sort of the, the model of how much of Jewish business law emerges. Do you want me to keep going? Yeah, that'd be great. Make of this a sacred anointing oil, a compound of ingredients expertly blended to serve as sacred anointing oil. With it, anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the pact, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and all its fittings, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the laver and its stands. Thus you shall consecrate them so that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them shall be consecrated. You shall also anoint Aaron and his sons, consecrating them to serve me as priests. You know, there's a, there's a lot here talking about holiness. And maybe it's because I have three little kids, but I, I just can't help but imagine that this also, who is holy and who is fit and who is ready to enter and who is not, becomes an opportunity for division and ridicule and uh, I, I, right. I mean, when we begin equating ritual purity to sacredness, uh, then suddenly someone who is ritually impure at a moment becomes less than sacred. Well, and, and also that whole offering, you know, that both poor and rich have to make alike is really going to support a priestly elite, isn't it? So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of the questions of is how elite are the priests? And there are some very significant checks on the priests from becoming too elite. Uh, they certainly are a caste and a senior, senior caste here. But for instance, priests are not allowed to own property. So they are always mm. dependent on the sacrifices and never able to generate independent wealth. Uh, or at least that's the idea. We end up knowing, if you look at things like 2 Kings 22, that tons and tons of wealth ends up being collected in the temple, which makes uh, the priesthood uh, quite a powerful political force as well. Yeah, so is this just, right? Is that part of the thing we're getting at? Like, is it uh, sacerdotally just to say that some people are pure and, and acceptable before God to do these rituals and others are not? Is it economically just to say that some people get to sit on the wealth of the society, so to speak? Uh, Miriam, as, as somebody involved in a justice organization, like, are these questions pretty big right now? with the people you work with, like how just how, how, how religion impacts political justice and vice versa. Yeah. I think it's really true right now. I think that there's these elements or these times when we wonder, we talk about what the future can be like and what is the good that we're looking towards? What's the good news we're trying to receive and how do we sort of live that out in our current world? And we'll sit at a panel and all of the people who are talking are, white men of a certain age or something like that and forgetting how to bring multiple voices in or when we're asking a minority to speak, whether it's gender or sexual identity or religion or race, it will ask them to speak about their own minority status. And like, that's how we include them. And, um, I think that we're becoming more and more aware or woke or whatever we want to call it to those things. When I think about it in this context, I sort of feel like this all was overthrown at some point. And so it's not that it's not relevant, but, um, I think the role and duty of rabbi is so different than what we're talking about here. And that eventually, that eventually these sacrifices become prayers and, and then we all have access to them. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I don't know. I don't know how I I personally relate to this in this moment, except that I I don't think we've mastered it yet. Right. Uh, it's, it would be hard to imagine that mastering it will be easy in any generation throughout time. <laughs> so, right. 
Uh, Daniel, any thoughts on that? Like wealth and justice? You know, I think it's the center of our conversation today uh, as Americans and as people in this world, right? I mean, we've entered into a world that is less economically just than just about any world that's ever existed. Uh, certainly in the United States, we know that income inequality yeah. and much more than that, wealth inequality uh, is huge, right? Income inequality across the board, but wealth inequality, I mean, the numbers when you look at race are incredible. Uh, black families often have, uh, on average, less than an eighth of the wealth that white families have. I mean, think about that. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's actually incredibly believable when you consider sort of the, the white supremacist history and ongoing policies of this country. Um, but right, right. Well, and I think this is why this is such a, a pregnant question to me is because the, the church, American Christianity has had a huge role in supporting these systems. Um, you know, if, uh, Miriam, you point out that this doesn't have much to do with present day Judaism. I can't help feeling it has a lot to do with present day Christianity. Mm. <laughs> right? We're always asking this question of uh, how do we prove that we are uh, more sacred than other people or closer to God than other people? And then how do we use that perceived closeness to God as a way of maintaining our wealth and prov- prominence while secluding or um, segregating others? Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's an ongoing worry, uh, within my own mind and within my own faith tradition. And it's really not what the tradition is supposed to be about. Therein lies our great challenge is that we are not what we profess to be. Well, I mean, either, I mean, of course we aren't either. I think we just, if this journey of Exodus is from scarcity to abundance and to call Walter Brueggemann into the space and, oh, yeah. and then our first reaction is to build this thing and then to create this recipe that makes some of us more in, t- in connection to God than others. And then we finally get to the land in Deuteronomy and then we want a king and suddenly the same character is showing up. So whether it's Pharaoh or a king or it's deciding who is more holy than others, I think it's sort of humanity struggle. I'd rather, mm-hmm. and maybe our faith traditions are trying to work through that, that we are so naturally wanting to snap back to the way things were because at least we could, at least we could figure out who had power and who didn't. Yeah, yeah, right, right. There's no uncertainty in this. No, I mean, our, our <laughs> political climate right now, too, is like that if someone's telling us they're going to protect us, then we kind of want to go towards that. And if this potion is going to cleanse us of what we were, or we can make an offering, or um, we can bomb someone, then we will take all kinds of measures of fascism or division or whatever we're going to do, just so that we can feel protected and safe in this moment. Yeah. Ah, it is so depressing. Okay, let's finish this <laughs> off before I start crying. Yeah, we have okay. lots of people writing in about how what first that we was last week. Just weeping for what I what I was weeping. Yeah. yeah, I know, but <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm a new age. I'm a new age sensitive man. You know, I, I can were, I can cry in public, yeah. man. <laughs> anyway, uh, what verse were we on? We're on thirty-one. Thirty-one. And speak to the Israelite people as follows. This shall be an anointing oil sacred to me throughout the ages. It must not be rubbed on any person's body, and you must not make anything like it in the same proportions. It is sacred, to be held sacred by you. Whoever compounds its like or puts any of it on a layman You can actually buy little kits of this, like tchotchke uh, uh, souvenir stuff when you go to Israel. Uh, and they always leave out one of the ingredients for that reason. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Instead of just having a, a warning label. <laughs> and the Lord said to Moses, take the herbs. Uh, what's that herbs name? Stacked. Yeah, I'm not helping at all. There. Help me. Uh, I, I have balsam, anica, galbanum, and clear frankincense. These herbs together with pure frankincense, let there be an equal part of each. Make them into incense, a compound expertly blended, refined, pure, sacred. Beat some of it into powder and put some before the pact in the tent of meeting, where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. 
But when you make this incense, you must not make any in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be held by you sacred to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it, to smell of it, shall be cut off from his kin. Yeah, all I wanted to do was make my room smell better, and now I'm not a part of the people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if you, if you had smelled yeah. the things in here, I mean, these um, dogs just got a shower. It's terrible. I, I don't see how they can blame me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so these are p- people differentiated by scent as well. So does this mean, like, uh, if you're walking around in ancient Israel... Um, you would know when you were in the presence of a Kohen just because uh, of the way yeah, it's Talk about a way to set people apart, right? It's not just clothing. It's not just status. It's also how you smell. Uh, wow. So, so many things going on here. Uh, but for, unfortunately, we have to come to an end. So, dear listeners, uh, thank you for joining us. And Miriam, thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure. Uh, and I will say that Lost in the Wilderness is made possible by the generosity of Christchurch Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. And our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, and I saw Brianna is going to be releasing a new CD at a concert at the cathedral. That makes sense. Yeah, she's an incredibly gifted musician who has uh, been doing a lot of great work lately. So that's really exciting. Um, uh, so we'll give a plug for that date next yeah, week. Yeah, good, good. Uh, any other shameless plugs we want to put forward? <laughs> Miriam, plug oh, away. Oh, plug away. Okay, well, Just Love is doing is participating in the Poor People's Campaign in May, the last week of May. You can like us on Facebook. Um, and we will also be leading the Pride Interfaith Pride Service for Cincinnati on June 17th. Everyone's welcome. That sounds amazing. Um, wow, I wish we had something like that in Columbus, frankly, because uh, our our pride is not very uh, religious. Well, Carl, Carl, it's an hour and a half drive. It's an hour and a half drive. I could come down and get my uh, you can get my your, interfaith you can get service on. Interfaith on, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, I might just Am I correct that you're also looking at expanding just love into other cities? We are. We are. Hmm. Cool. Okay. So look for it coming to a, to a neighborhood near you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, dear listeners, have a great week. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Bye.